Good morning. Good morning. It's uh, good to see you all today. Uh, Pastor Dave texted me uh, early this week and said, hey, how would you like to finish out John chapter 3? I said, really? I would love to do that. 15 verses, the end of chapter 3. John, the gospel of John is just marvelous. And then what we've been going through, he's been taking us through certainly the um, new birth. And here we are at John the Baptist's last testimony. I can't wait. 15 verses and we'll cover them this morning. Thank you for trusting me with the pulpit this morning, Pastor. If you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, we want to dive right in first thing and look at verse 30. John 3, verse 30. Many of you probably know this verse. Hopefully you do. John 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Hey, if you look in your bulletins this morning, can I encourage you to write that down right at the top there? Write it as an affirmation uh, before we begin. He must increase but I must decrease. That's the title of today's message. It's the big idea. It's the the theme. Jesus must increase. Some call this the first law of ministry, and rightly so, but it's also a a simple, a profound truism, a a truth that applies to everyone. If you could imagine a seesaw, a teeter-totter seesaw, and when one end is up, the other end is down, and vice versa, right? Uh, When... Christ is lifted up, we should be down. And the problem that we have certainly is we sometimes level that out or even lift ourselves up and you have Jesus where he's not supposed to be. He must increase. When one end is up, the other end must be down, but I must decrease. Well, there's much for us to examine in this passage this morning. Again, if you look at your bulletins, I've done something a little different uh, this Sunday. I've given you a little more detail in there, some more details, uh, just because uh, I, I think we'll be fine. But just so you can walk through this with me, we'll walk together uh, through these 15 verses. I thought I'd give you a little more detail for your note taking. But let me read these verses to you. It's uh, verses 22 to 36 here in John 3. Again, this is John's last testimony here, beginning in verse 22. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a few about purification. This is really about baptism, but it's more about Old Testament baptism. We'll talk about that in a moment. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And here's verse 30 again. He must 
increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that, he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's look this morning at the setting. I've broken this out into uh, three different pieces for you this morning. You can see the setting, the sentiment, the support. And I want to get right to it and look at the setting because the very first thing we see is in verse 22 here. It says, after these things, after these things. So it's after the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem, John chapter 2. It's the first time he cleanses the temple. After the Pharisee named Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night. Do you remember that? Pastor Dave's preached on these events over the past few weeks. So after these things, the text continues, and it says, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. So Jesus and his disciples, they leave the city of Jerusalem, and they head into the countryside. As a matter of fact, based on John 4, 35, we can conclude that he spent up to six months with the disciples. Six months discipling the disciples, likely training them, as well as baptizing. Chapter 4, verse 2, not much further from our text here, is interesting as well. It reads, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. I'm guessing this was to avoid any kind of bragging that could take place. Hey, I was baptized by Jesus and you weren't. Yours doesn't count. Something along those lines. You can imagine how that would play out. So Jesus is with the disciples and they are baptizing, as was John, John the Baptist, verse 23. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. So as soon as Jesus went into the regions of Judea to do his, his ministry, John takes the lesser route and he heads to Anon. He, he heads to a place known as Samaria a much more remote place, a much quieter place. And I love this. Right away, I'm in love with our text because there's no competition. It's, it's a humble act in ministry. And yet, he's doing the exact same thing that Jesus is doing. And so you have their ministries here for a period of time. They, they kind of overlap one another here. John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and he's saying, make way, make straight way, the way the, of the Lord. John the Baptist, who Jesus says in Matthew eleven eleven, all of all who have ever lived, none is greater. So John the Baptist is pointing to the light, capital L, and Jesus appears on the scene here. And you remember what John said, right? Behold, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All that introduction, and now they are both preaching repentance and baptizing. They're both doing it. The Messiah is doing it, and this man, albeit the greatest man, that's what Jesus says, is doing it as well. And so for a period of time, they interlapped. They were doing the exact same thing here. And John is constantly pointing to the light. Again, John 4 is helpful here. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So apparently, Jesus' popularity is beginning to increase while John's is, is decreasing, which is why we have this sort of dispute, dispute that happens in verses 25 and 26, giving us all this background. If you look at those verses again. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. Now, again, this is not the baptisms that we would know today. Biggest reason why is because Jesus has not died and rose again yet. It's a form of it, more of a purification that took place, more of an Old Testament, both tradition and connected to the law, a whole other rabbit trail we could go down. But the point is that this was the starting point of a dispute that is taking place here. And it goes much further than that. Verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So they are uh, choosing, they are picking sides right now, sort of an Apollos, Apollos or Paul. You know what I'm talking about there? First Corinthians 3, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul. But worse here, we're talking about the Messiah. And worse yet, they don't even mention his name. Look again, it says, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified. You mean Jesus, right? You wouldn't have had to say all those words. You could have just said his name. He who was with you beyond the Jordan, I'm not going to say it, to whom you have testified. No, it's Jesus. You're talking about Jesus. It's pure jealousy that's speaking here. Why are we up in some isolated place in Samaria and that guy, that guy you were with, is taking over? Jesus is taking over. Now, what's interesting here is it's not the first time in our scriptures, that a humble man is really being tested with that kind of question, with that kind of competition that is there. In the Old Testament, if you turn to the book of Numbers, in the Old Testament, we have Moses. And Moses kind of experienced the same thing, very similar thing. If you turn to Numbers 11, Numbers 11, please. I want you to see this in Numbers 11. Back in Numbers 11, a very similar event happened. We're still looking at the setting here, but it's important. Numbers eleven twenty-six. The focus is on two men that are in the camp of Israel. And Israel is being led through the wilderness, you may recall at this point, by Moses. And in verse 26, it says, two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. 
and the Spirit rested upon them. Again, remember Old Testament. See, now, as a believer in Christ, we're indwelt permanently with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, in that time, the Spirit resting on an individual for a period of time meant God's blessing, God's hand of blessing upon them. Spirit would rest, Spirit would leave, Spirit would rest, and it rested upon them. Now, they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent. They're one of the 70 elders, and they prophesied, they were preaching in the camp. These two men are preaching in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are, are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses, from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Again, I love it. I love it. Moses is saying, you know what? I wish everyone was sharing the word of the Lord. What would be wrong with that? Let them all be faithful. Let the spirit rest upon all of them. There's no such thing as competitiveness in doing the Lord's work, right? There, there shouldn't be. No such thing that is with humble people. We are all seeking to see him high and lifted up, yes? Not ourselves, but Christ. And here, Joshua was taking it too far. He thought he was being loyal, but what he was doing is he was taking it too far. And so were the followers of John the Baptist, which brings us back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And we move to the sentiment. From the setting to the sentiment. There are three distinct attitudes we find from John the Baptist here as he responds to his disciples. These are his disciples that he is talking to. And these are his words. Everything we've read here in 22 to 36, it's all of John the Baptist. And they form his last recorded words in the Gospels. But before we tackle these uh, three sentiments, uh, before we look at this, let me just state that his reply to them, John the Baptist here, his reply is as instructive as it is convicting. Here the greatest man who ever lived is also one of the most humble. And I think that's what makes this passage so amazing, is knowing the title he ended up receiving from our Lord, but then seeing such a great contrast in his words that are here. Perhaps that's why uh, he can be called great. You know, John is bold. He's blunt at times. He's uh, passionate. He's uh, a man of principle. Uh, we know this from Rick's reading of Matthew 14 this morning. This guy would speak the truth even if it meant losing his head, which he did. He did. But he's also sincere. He's full of faith. And as I said before, he's humble. He's humble. Look at these three sentiments with me found in verses 27 to 31. And as we do this, let me just say that my prayer, one of my prayers this morning is as we look at this text together, as we just go line by line through this, that his attitude would be ours. That this love that that he has, that he had for our Lord, that it would be contagious for us here 
in the body of Christ. So the first one here is the sentiment or the attitude of sovereign grace. The sentiment of sovereign grace. Verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John recognized that salvation, he recognized that uh, spiritual gifts, ministry to others, it's all from heaven. It's, it's not something you deserve. It's, it's not something you can earn. It's not something you are somehow worthy of. No, it is the result of sovereign grace. It is a gift of grace, just like every other gift God gives to us unworthy sinners. James 1.17 says every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, right? From the, from the Father of lights. And his ministry gifts, all that John was able to do was a mercy. It was a mercy flowing to an unworthy Christian based on sovereign grace. Again, you can't earn it. You can't gain it. You, you can't achieve it, nor do you even deserve it. And that is John the Baptist's sentiment here. When you see forward progress in your life, when you experience the blessing of being used to minister to another, possibly even bearing fruit in that opportunity. You know, you get opportunities to identify with Christ. We get this. Sometimes we're faithful, right? But regardless of how that person receives the truth that you're sharing, when you serve him in the simplest of ways, John says, it has been given to you from heaven. I mean, it's a result of his sovereign plan, and it's by his loving grace. It really isn't about you or me, right? Not really. God, in his sovereign grace, purposed that it would fall in your lap. Whatever gifts you have, whatever ones that you have, you know this. They are gifts. They are sovereign grace gifts. And it would be good for us to not lose sight of that, to not slip into some kind of attitude that, in essence, despises the gifts that God has granted to us in his wisdom. John the Baptist was delighted to see Jesus's popularity growing and his own declining. That brought him joy. He went on to say in verse 28, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Sent. I didn't earn this. This isn't about me. He must increase. It's about Christ. He understood he was unworthy of what he had been given. And by the way, did you know that this is also true of Christ, the sentiment of sovereign grace? Just drop down to verse 35 there for a moment. Verse 35, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. I mean, even our Lord could say that all he had, it was given to him from heaven, from his Father. And so first, the sentiment of sovereign grace And second here, we see the sentiment of unspeakable privilege. Unspeakable privilege. John gives us this beautiful illustration. Uh, Verse 29, he says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. 
So picture, shouldn't be difficult. There's been a number of them here. Picture a wedding ceremony up here. Just picture that for a moment. So the bride is to my right. The bridegroom is to my left. The friend of the bridegroom, usually not always in this illustration, yes, but sometimes it's someone else, has a very special place of honor in this wedding because he might have been the one who introduced them. He might have introduced the bride and the bridegroom. And he is standing close enough to the bridegroom, standing here, close enough to the bridegroom, to hear the words that are being said to the bride. He can hear those words. But what if, it's going to sound terrible, but what if the friend of the bridegroom was to jump right in front of the groom? What if he was to start saying the words? What if he was to put the ring on the finger? You go, that's nonsense. How offensive is that? What an ego, right? What's he even thinking? And so using this illustration, John says, look, I'm only the friend of the bridegroom. Sure, I was responsible in some sense for introducing the two. Jesus is the bridegroom. Believers, now in this age, the church is the bride. But I am in only a supporting secondary role. It's all about the bridegroom and the bride. John is only the friend of the bridegroom. And that to him is an unspeakable privilege. It's an unspeakable privilege. End of verse 29. Again, so this joy of mine has been made full. He is saying that he has no more room for joy. His cup is full. It's running over. I, I have full joy here. John's saying, don't you get it? I am so close to the, the bridegroom that I can hear what he is saying to his bride. And I love it. I love it. Oh, the joy. The NIV says, the joy is mine and it is now complete. I love hearing the Messiah say that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I love hearing him call all to repentance and faith. I love I love seeing the people lining up to follow after the Lord Jesus. What more could a preacher want? What more could the friend, this friend and follower of Christ desire? So this joy of mine, John says, has been made full. And it is an unspeakable privilege. You know, why God chooses to use any of us I don't know. Have you had those moments you have where, again, as I was saying, you have an opportunity and for some reason in this instance, we're found faithful. And there's a joy that we receive in that opportunity that we've been given. Wow, I actually identified with Christ. Wow, this was really neat. And I see fruit from that. And you realize it's not of yourself, right? It's not, he doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. He chooses to use us. And there's a joy in being used in that way. And that's the unspeakable privilege that we're all to have. And John here is saying exactly that. He's saying, I'm a friend. I'm a friend of Christ. And let me tell you something. That is an unspeakable 
unspeakable privilege. Which is why we have this signature text in verse 30. Saying, I'm the best man. It's not about me, what I have in position, what I have in power, in possessions, privilege. It is all from above. Sovereign grace. God's plan and God's gifting. It's not about me. I have been given an unspeakable privilege. I have nothing really to say about me, myself, and I. I'm, it's unspeakable. And privilege, the joy of being his friend, well, it's all mine. It's all mine. And so John then says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's a great statement. But I think with a statement like that, it's easy to miss a key word. It's repeated twice. Do you see it there? Must. He must increase, but I must decrease. Must is a a great word here. Some commentators rightly call it a a, uh, divine necessity. God's will. Look back at verse 7, same chapter here. You must be born again. Verse 14. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Again, all a part of God's decreed will. A divine imperative. And call it what you like, but these are not requests made by God. It's not a suggestion. He must increase, but I must decrease. This concept is uh, countercultural to all we know, think, say, and do today, isn't it? I mean, social media reverses this. I must increase. Self-expression reverses this. I must increase. And this speaks to where our identity lies. And our identity requires recognition by another. We, we say... We want someone to say, here's how I want you to identify me. We want to coach them, and this is the way I want you to see me. Instead of, here is how Christ sees me. Here is how Christ identifies me. In Christ, I am a child of God. In Christ, I am a friend of Christ. In Christ, I am a little Christ, literally a Christian, a Christian. Some of you may have heard of Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I finished reading, pretty big book, uh, pretty heady, but I, I finished reading it not too long ago, and I absolutely loved it. It's been called the most important cultural book of the year. Some have said of the decade, I'd have to agree with it. It speaks much on the matter of self. And I just want to share with you a little quote here from Truman uh, dealing with the matter of self. He says, another way of approaching the matter of self is to ask what it is that makes a person happy. What is it that makes a person happy? Is happiness found in directing oneself outward or inward? For example... Just as an example, is job satisfaction to be found in the fact that it enables me to feed and clothe my family? Or is it to be found in the fact that the very actions involved in my work bring me a sense of inner well-being? The answer I give 
speaks of what I consider the purpose of life and meaning of happiness. In sum, it is how I think of myself. And you know, John here passes the test. His answer is Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. You see very quickly where his identity is with a statement like that. We have seen the sentiment of sovereign grace, the attitude really of unspeakable privilege, and now thirdly here, the attitude or sentiment of origins. Origins. Like a a genealogy statement from Ancestry.com, this next verse gives us some context to his own origin as well as Christ. Verse 31, John the Baptist, still speaking directly to his own disciples, he says, he who comes from above, now that he is Jesus, is above all, he who is of the earth, John the Baptist and every other human being, is from earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. First, clearly here, when John states that Jesus is above all, he is not merely referring to his location. He's speaking here also of authority, of authority, that the one, capital O, the one from the location of heaven has authority over all the universe. He's not simply a man from Nazareth. He is from above, and he is Lord over all. And because Pastor Dave has been taking us through the Gospel of John, you have to hear that and go, boy, this really takes us all the way back to the first verse of this Gospel, doesn't it? Just look at it for a moment. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus And the word was with God and the word was God. Down to verse 3, there is not one atom of this entire created order in which Jesus doesn't have authority. Verse 3, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing, nothing came into being that has come into being. So John the Baptist has been trained well. We can see that. He knows his theology. And that is why he stated in chapter 3, verse 31, that Jesus comes from above and is above all. It's a a reaffirmation of this important truth. And, you know, I, I need to say this. Whether we recognize his origin and his authority, whether we recognize it or not, it does not alter the fact that he owns it all. He owns it all. Abraham Kuyper in his commentary said that when Jesus returns, when he comes back in the second coming, he's just simply going to say, it's all mine. Because it's been given to him by the Father. And John the Baptist here is contrasting his origin with the Messiah's. Again, in verse 31, he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. You know, there's an old saying, perhaps you've heard this, never meet your heroes. You ever heard that before? Never meet your heroes. Why? Because you'll soon learn they have imperfections. You'll soon learn they're quite human. They've got shortcomings. They have flaws. They have attitudes. Things that we don't normally see. And John is saying here, again, he's saying, I I am simply a secondhand teacher. 
just a weak man following an omnipotent God. That's who I am. This is why he repeats at the end of the verse, he who comes from heaven is above all. This week, in providence of God, as you'd have it in my devotion time, I came across uh, Cornelius. Remember when Cornelius falls at Peter's feet? I hadn't thought about it, but then in my devotion time, I just happened to hit it. And I was like, wow, this is, this is perfect. I got to throw this in. It's Acts 10, 26. You don't need to turn there. But you remember, he falls at Peter's feet in an attempt to worship him. And Peter made him get up. But Peter made him get up and said, stand up. He said, I am only a man myself. There is shock and awe in those words. Over Peter being mistaken for a divine being. He's like, I'm not going to rob the true one of his glory. I am only a man myself. And John the Baptist was called the greatest man who had ever lived. But even so, in his own words, he who is of the earth is from earth and speaks of the earth. That's his origin. That's his limitation. John was very human in contrast to the God-man Jesus. And he makes it clear that he understands the divine origin of Jesus Christ. He is the uncreated son of God. Jesus is the uncreated son of God who entered into human history through the womb of Mary by the spirit of God in his incarnation. Yes, he's, he's truly God. He's God and he's truly man, as human as human can be. But John is saying, don't let that distract you. Don't from his heavenly origin. All of this, all of this, seeing the sovereign grace of God in our lives, the unspeakable privilege we have to be loved and to be used of him and be reminded of the, the deity of Christ. He is God and we are not origins. These three unexpected responses from John are not only humble and doctrinal, they serve as reminders for each of us. They're really good reminders. No measure of success is ours alone. We need to remember that. We need to be careful with that. We want to be sure to give God the glory. Give God the glory. Give him first place in it all. And that begins in the heart. And I think we could say here that John passed the heart test, didn't he? Competition and ownership. It's not compatible with ministry. It's, it's not yours, but it is your unspeakable privilege to serve others. And that is the sentiment of this passage. Which brings us lastly to John's support of Jesus's words. So we took some time right away to look at the setting and then to pull out these three sentiments. And then we see some support here. Look at verse 32. What we have seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. You know, this is just a pet peeve, and I, I just want to mention this, but divine pronouns, I, I love how the NASB actually catches that and capitalizes the H in he. It actually does that. It's, again, a pet peeve, but I'm very thankful. If, if it weren't the case in the NASB, I might end up doing it myself. 
because I just want to see him receive the glory and honor in that way. And this is such a great verse. What he, capital H, has seen and heard, meaning the truth, while in heaven from God the Father. Of that, he testifies, referring to his current preaching that people are flocking to hear. And John says, get this, here's what John says. No one receives his testimony. No one receives his testimony. Oh, he, Jesus, is drawing the numbers, but the reality of total depravity remains. Total depravity. No one receives, certainly without a work of the Spirit. Back in verse 11, Jesus said the same thing. He said, you do not accept our testimony. That's because it's uh, not an earthly message. It's not an earthly message. It's not fortune cookie theology. You know what I mean? Fortune cookie theology? Tim Challies, years ago, it's still online. You can Google it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, he has a quiz, an online quiz called Joel Osteen or Fortune Cookie. I dare you, Google it. It's tough. The challenge is to read a quote and to, then to decide which are from Joel Osteen and which is from a fortune cookie. Check it out. Uh, it's, it's difficult to discern because the message is an earthly one. That's why. They both sound the same. People do not want to hear the undiluted truth of the gospel. People do not want to be told that they are in sin. When that happens, they will most often turn on you. Verse 33. He who has received his testimony. Okay, so there are some, by the Spirit, a few who will receive it. He, the believer, who has received his testimony, has set his seal to this. Oh, this is good. Set his seal to this, that God is true. John the Baptist is making it crystal clear here that by the work of the Spirit, he has personally declared that what Jesus has said concerning himself, our sin, heaven, hell, is true. It's true. The New King James uses the word certified, stamped it, set his seal on it, fully embraces and endorses it. And you can add my name to that list. My salvation has come from the words of Christ in Scripture to my eyes and ears. I, I've received it and, and set my seal upon it. Can you say the same? Are you in full support? Have you set your seal upon the words of Christ? In John's words here, that God is true. Look, if, if you don't believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God, then guess what? Then God lied. That's what you're affirming, that God lied. So don't hold to some half-truth that you believe in God, just not Jesus and his words. If you reject Jesus, you are saying that God is a liar. Listen carefully, very similar verse, 1 John 5, 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. 
Verse 33, one more time. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. I trust that God has done this in your own heart and in your own soul. Next verse. We are nearing the end of this great testimony, the last testimony of uh, John the Baptist. Verse 34. For he, again Jesus, whom God has sent, speaks the words of God. For he, God the Father, gives the Spirit without measure. This is really neat as well. Do you see the Trinity here in this verse, in one verse? It is as God that Jesus is given unlimited access to the Spirit by the Father. Jesus, Spirit, Father. And it is a ministry of the Holy Spirit, one of the ministries of the Spirit, to share the words of the Father through the Son. So God the Father has given God the Son his words by way of the Spirit of God. It says he gives the Spirit without measure. And adds in verse 36, an interesting perspective, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. You know, we often look at the gospel from our perspective, and there's nothing wrong with that, certainly. I mean, we are receiving this amazing gift, and so we do that. But the truth is, we're simply the gift from the Father to the Son. We're the love gift because we're going to worship him for all eternity. Think on this. We are the love gift from the father to the son to worship him for forever and a day. God is glorified by his eternal love relationship with his son. God will give to his son all his creation in its final form. The new heavens, the new earth. He will give him the redeemed humanity as love gifts from the Father to the Son. Hey, no wonder it says God is love. God is love. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Which brings us to the final words in the final testimony of John the Baptist here. These are all his words. And he ends them with an invitation. With an invitation. Verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If there's something to remember uh, in this sermon today, this is it. Please listen. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Has it. He doesn't have to wait to receive it. The believer's gift of life is received. Yes, it's sealed until the day of redemption. You can't lose it. If you believe, then you have received it. It's yours. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. John goes from believing, did you catch that? From believing to obeying. 
The gospel is a command. It's not a recommendation. If you believe, then you have already obeyed. But if you do not, then you have not obeyed and will not see this eternal life instead, but the wrath of God abides on him. You remember the saying, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner? There's a problem with that statement. I think most of us know this, but there's a problem with that statement, isn't there? To love them is to share the truth with them, certainly, and we want to do that. But is the wrath of God on the person here or on the person's sin? But the wrath of God abides on him. On him. You have a choice. Believe. Set your seal upon the words of Christ and receive eternal life. You will have it or disobey and affirm that God has lied and the wrath of God will abide upon you. Sounds a lot like John 3.16, doesn't it? Believe and you will not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life or eternal wrath. Heaven or hell. And so John the Baptist, he, he ends this whole section here with an invitation. It's an invitation. He's a gospel preacher in this text. And I pray that you've heard his words. Because in every single word that we have covered today from John, we see that he fully understood that it is Jesus who must increase, but I must decrease. May that be our sentiment as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for the joys which are ours. By your sovereign hand, by your sovereign grace, we have what we have because we've received it. And it's not come. What is it that we have that hasn't come from your hand? From above. I mean, even the privilege of being gathered here together this morning to contemplate your truth and our Savior, to, to sing songs, to uh, encourage one another, even to give and, and to pray together. It's an unspeakable privilege. So our prayer this morning is that our purpose, our, our priority, should you tarry today, this week, and every week, may be the same. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Father, may we love him more. May we serve him, serve you more faithfully. Bless us now as we respond in song to the preaching of your word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.